take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, we're continuing in our series in 2 Samuel this morning. And uh, please turn to 2 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to be reading together this morning 2 Samuel chapter 8 and 2 Samuel chapter 10. Uh, we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 9, the story of David's kindness to uh, Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth, uh, a couple months ago. And so we're going to be looking at chapters 8 and 10 uh, today, which form a, a unit uh, in the study of God's Word. So let's read together from chapter 8, verse 1. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Amar out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadiza, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the, at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hum, hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadiza, the king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadiza and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and from Berathai, cities of Hadadiza, King David took very much bronze. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David defeated the whole army of Hadadiza, Toi sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadiza and defeated him. For Hadadiza had often been at war with Toi. And Joram bought, brought with him articles of silver and gold and of bronze. These also David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and the gold that he dedicated from the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder, and Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Sariah was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. Now let's move on to chapter 10. After this, chapter 10 verse 1, after this the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun their lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? 
Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobar, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Maacah with 1,000 men and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle, in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobar and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Maacah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God and may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together and had Adiza sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to, to Helam and were with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadiza, at their, ha at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobach, the commander of the army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Well, this is God's word, and uh, I trust as we've read it uh, that you are looking forward with anticipation to what God has to teach us from this portion of his word this morning. It is good for me to be back with you in our series in 2 Samuel. Uh, we started the series back in July last year, uh, but we made somewhat slow progress in 2 Samuel because we were alternating with our series in Revelation. And so for the rest of this term, uh, Shane and I will be continuing every Sunday morning to work our way through the rest of the book uh, of 2 Samuel. Now, last Sunday morning, I preached an introduction sermon to our new evening series, which will start tonight on the life of Joseph, and that was from Psalm 105. And the title that I gave to the sermon uh, last week was God's Faithfulness to His Covenant Promises. And we saw how the life of Joseph 
is really best understood and applied in the context of the big picture commitment of God which he made to Abraham and then how he fulfilled those promises to Abraham ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now as we come to 2 Samuel 8 and 10 this morning, we could have just as appropriately given today's sermon the same title, God's Faithfulness to His Covenant Promises. As we consider these chapters in the light, not so much of the Abrahamic covenant, but of the Davidic covenant, uh, which Shane preached on last time in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But to avoid the confusion of having two sermons with the same title, we're going to be looking at today's chapters under the heading of Tracing Out the Promises of God. So keep that in your mind, Tracing Out the Promises of God. Now I'm not sure if that is the title that you would have arrived at after reading these two chapters. Two chapters which seem to be a a long account of various battles of King David with a whole host of enemy nations all around him. Battles which some of the details seem rather gruesome and cruel and even perhaps somewhat barbaric to our modern minds. Perhaps you are one of those people who really don't enjoy history, um, uh, particularly not geopolitical history. And to add to that, you hate war movies. And so as I was reading these chapters, your eyes were just glazing over and you were really hoping that the service would end soon. Well, let me remind you that all Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. And so we must keep that in mind, even as we come to passages like this today. But what I hope to show you today as well from these two chapters is that all Scripture does indeed point us to the Lord Jesus Christ and is only rightly understood when we connect the passage to Jesus Christ and what he reveals to us about God through his word. And so for us to to trace out the promises of God to David in these chapters, we need to go back to chapter 7 just briefly. And so turn with me uh, back to chapter 7 verse 8 and let's be reminded of exactly what it was that God promised to David in the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel 7 verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now here come the promises. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers I will raise up, God says, your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And here's another promise. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish his throne, uh, sorry, the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. 
So as we come to these two chapters today, I want to to show you that what may appear to just be an account of, of boring war history is in reality very meticulously God's faithfulness to his covenant promises to David. And so in the first place, we see that God promised to David, I will give you rest from your enemies. So that comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11, and we see that fulfilled in chapters 8, 1 to 14. This is really the main promise which underpins the entire account of these battles of David with the nations around him, that God's people cannot and will not know rest and peace in the promised land until their enemies have been destroyed or at least uh, have been disarmed and subdued. Now, because we are not perhaps familiar with ancient uh, geography and political history, we might just read chapter 8, for example, as a, a long list of names and places, but the author is making it very clear that this account is in no ways random. Look at verse 1, chapter 8, verse 1. David defeated the Philistines to the west of Israel. Verse 2, David defeated the Moabites to the east of Israel. Verse 3 to 5, David defeats the Zobahites and the Syrians to the north of Israel. And then verses 13 to 14, David defeated the Edomites to the south. The record we have is making it very clear that God not only gave to David the control of the boundaries of the land of Canaan, which he had originally promised to Abraham, but he gave Israel rest from their enemies as David defeated and subdued and struck down all the nations that surrounded Israel, north, east, southwest, and he brought them all under his rule. Now, how do we know that all of this was God's doing? That the record we have of these battles is indeed God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. Well, because in verse 6 and verse 14, we are told exactly that. Twice we have this exact explanation of what was going on. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Even a final last-ditch attempt by the Ammonites and the Syrians in chapter 10 to kind of gather together all the allies that they could find beyond the river Euphrates. All of that came to nothing as David gathered all of Israel's fighting men and he routed the armies and he subdued them as servants. So God's promise to David is fulfilled. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. The violent men shall afflict them no more and I will give you rest from all your enemies. That's the first promise that God gave to David. The next promise which God gave to David is linked to the first but it's, it's distinct, namely, I will provide a place for my people. I won't just give you rest as kind of nomads in, in another man's territory. No, I will give you a place of your own. Now, this promise of God to David was really just a, a reaffirmation of God's covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Back in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
And then in Genesis 15, God said, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land, the land of Canaan, to possess. Then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and they'll be servants there. That's Egypt. That's tonight's message. Uh, when we come to Joseph in Genesis 37, they'll be servants there. They'll be afflicted for 400 years, but I'll bring judgment on that nation, the nation of Egypt. Afterwards, they will come out with great possessions and they shall come back here back to Canaan in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So as David now comes to power as the king of Israel, and as we've seen earlier in the chapters of, of 2 Samuel, we see now that God reaffirms to David the promise to Abraham, I will provide a place, a land for my people. I will settle my people in their own land. And what we see in these chapters, chapter 8 and 10, is not only secure peace and rest from their enemies, but now they fulfill God's promise to give them their very own land. Now look at verse 15, chapter 8, verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. What a wonderful verse. The land is secure. The enemies are defeated. The king rules with justice and equity for all. It almost sounds like a little piece of heaven on earth. And I think it's meant to. It's meant to be a wonderfully clear, albeit a, a pencil sketch, of the reality which God purposes for his people. Now, it's not going to be long before this picture that we have in verse 15 unravels and disintegrates. Actually, it's going to happen in the very next chapter, chapter 11. But for now, God graciously fulfills his promises to David in a very tangible way to show them, his people then, and to show us that he ultimately has in store for us something great for those who love him. Now, just before we move on, I want you to see as well, though, that there is something more going on in this chapter than simply the fulfillment of God's faithfulness to Abraham and to David to give them a land, to have victory over their enemies. Because what we find here is that even the account of the, the, the nature of the, the enemies being struck down with the sword, being, being destroyed by David, even this was God being faithful to his promises. Remember what I read in, in Genesis 15, verse 16. God said to, to Abraham, your children, your family, your people will be in Egypt for 400 years, and then I'm gonna bring them back to Canaan. Why? Why a 400-year delay? Why can't they just stay in Canaan from the very beginning? Because, God said, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites was the collective name given to the people who inhabited the land of Canaan, particularly the northern part of Canaan, Syria, and the peoples living on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And so as we read about the victories of David over all of these nations in, in 2 Samuel 8 and 10, we see that in God's purposes, 
in God's timing, the wickedness, the iniquity of the Amorites of all these Canaanite nations had reached its completion. And in God's fulfillment of his promise to give Israel their own land, he is also fulfilling his promise to judge the wickedness of the nations who lived around him and rejected him as God. Nothing in God's purposes is ever arbitrary or cruel or unfair, which is why the text says twice, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Well, the next promise which we see fulfilled uh, in these chapters is that God said, I will make your name great uh, in chapter 7 verse 9. Now we see this both directly and indirectly in the text before us. We see it very directly in verse 13. But it maybe comes in a form that we don't quite understand. It says in verse 13, David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites. And this could be read as a kind of egotistic thing in which David sought to, to promote himself, blow his own trumpet as the rulers of his day and as the politicians of our day so love to do. But if we look carefully at these chapters, we will see that none of what David accomplished in these chapters was for his own glory. Throughout chapter 8, we are told of the plunder of war which David amassed. Gold and silver and huge amounts of bronze. Some of it was plunder that he took from the nations he conquered. Others was brought to David, uh, as we saw with, with King Toy uh, in, in verses 9 and 10, the king of Hamath, who came to honor David with gifts of gold and silver. Now look at verse 11. These gifts that King Toy brought to David, gold and silver, these also King David dedicated to the Lord together with the silver and the gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. So as God gave David victory over all of his enemies, the plunders of war were brought into Jerusalem. Commentators think most likely stockpiled to fund the building of the temple. And we are told that David dedicated it all to the Lord. David here was following the rules set out for Israel's kings by Moses in, in Deuteronomy 17. In Deuteronomy, Moses says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, one whom the Lord your God will choose. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest he turn his heart away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold." So even as what we consider to be very cruel perhaps to our modern minds today that David hamstrung all the enemy's horses in verse four, we see that this was in direct obedience to God's instructions that his king over Israel should not amass many horses. We can then understand after reading these chapters that David wrote in Psalm 20, some put their trust in chariots and some in horses 
but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. But also in a more indirect way, we see that God made David's name great in the way that he conducted himself as king. We are told in verse 16 that David reigned over all Israel, including these nations that he subdued, with justice and equity to all people. Even those who should have been his enemies in chapter 10, we see that David acts with dignity and faithfulness to a covenant that he had made with King Nahash of the Ammonites. In all of David's military victories and his diplomatic dealings and his royal responsibilities, he acted in accordance with the commands of God. And the fame and the honor of his name spread across all of Israel and the surrounding nations. Now sadly, this is the highest point in the story of David. And it all takes a sharp downturn uh, for the worse from, from next week on. But despite what is coming, we, we see that God's faithfulness to his covenant promises continue even when his people fail miserably. And so in the fourth place, that leads me right on to the fourth promise that God gave to David, which is that I will raise up a son after you. Now while this is part of God's promise, which is not actually fulfilled in these chapters, we see that the need for someone to rise up after David actually starts in these chapters. Just move down to chapter 10 with me. We've had this account of Nahash, the king of the Ammonites. He died, uh, and David sent a group of servants to his son, the new king, King Hanun, to offer condolences and to pay his respects. Chapter 10, verse 2 says that David wanted to deal loyally with Hanun, now that's the Hebrew word chesed. We've encountered this many times before. It's the word for covenant faithfulness. And so it seems that while back in 1 Samuel, David was fleeing for his life from King Saul, that King Nahash of Ammon had offered David a safe haven. And David made a covenant with him to be kind to him in the future. Then we read of the foolishness of King Nahash's son, Hanun, as he listens to his band of princes and, and he treats David's actions with distrust and suspicion. He treats, say, David's servants with utter shame and disgrace. He, he shaves off half of their beards, which was a symbol of their masculinity. Then he cuts off their robes at the waist, exposing their private parts. This is an act of utter public humiliation and disgrace. And then he sends them packing back to David effectively disgracing David. Now clearly, after all that we've read about David's victories over all the other surrounding nations, this was the most stupid thing that any king could have ever done, especially a new young king who just took over from his father. And so it didn't take long for word to get back to the Ammonites that they have become a stench to David, and they knew what was coming. It wouldn't be long before King David and his army would come marching over the horizon and he would strike down and subdue the Ammonites as he had done to all the other nations. And so in a flat panic, the Ammonites hire a bunch of Syrian mercenaries, seems to be about 35,000 of them, to gather for war against David. Now please look carefully with me at verse 7. And when David heard of it, this gathering for war, 
he sent Joab. What is going on here? Up to this point, we have been told again and again and again that David went to war against the Philistines and the Moabites and the Zobahites and the Syrians and the Edomites. And he struck them down and he subdued them. Why? Because the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. But this time, David sent Joab. Why? Where was David? What was so important to keep the great warrior King David out of battle, at home? Well, it's just a hint at this point, but turn over to chapter 11, verse 1, and read with me there. Chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, same words, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, his afternoon nap, and was walking around on the roof of the palace. He saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. We'll get to that story next week. But the beginning of David's downfall, the collapse of all the good that he had accomplished for God in chapters 8 and 10 starts in chapter 10 verse 7 when David stayed at home lounging on his couch and he sent Joab out to fight his battles. I think the narrator is wanting us to realize that in the midst of the, the height of these chapters is that David would never be the ultimate fulfillment of God's covenant promises. Because as a, a mighty warrior as David was, as much as he was in so many ways a man after God's own heart, David is not and will never be the savior and the king that God purposed for his people. And so God's promise to David was, I will raise up a son after you. And so that brings us to the final part of God's covenant promise to David, which is that God said, I will establish his kingdom. Not your kingdom, David, his kingdom forever. Although these chapters tell us about David's reigning over all of Israel, it's not long before all of this crumbles and disintegrates. We're going to see this more clearly in the weeks ahead, but for now, all we need to know is that thank the Lord the story does not end with David. It doesn't even reach its pinnacle with David's son, Solomon. He accomplished great things, incredible things for the name of God and for the kingdom of Israel. But he too fails miserably and so does every other king who follows after him. And so while chapter 10 brings us to this wonderful high point in Israel's history, we are left anticipating a future son of David. We are left anticipating a son who will have God as his father, who will build an eternal house for God and whose kingdom will never, ever end. It was this son of David that the prophets anticipated in the Old Testament. It's this future king of whom we sang of this morning who would reign on David's throne, who occupies much of the Psalms. 
And it is this Son of God and King of Kings who we are introduced to in the very first verse of the New Testament, the New Covenant. Matthew 1 verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. It was this Jesus who came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, heading for his crucifixion on a Roman cross to whom the crowds cried out on Palm Sunday, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It is the same Jesus of whom the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter one, verse eight, but of the son he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And it's the same Jesus whom Revelation tells us is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And his kingdom shall reign forever and ever. We need to close, and I want us to just think about what these two chapters expect of you and me as a response this morning. And quite simply, the text reveals two very different responses to David, which really is a shadow and a pointer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it reveals two very different ways which we can respond to Jesus. There is firstly the sensible response, which is to honor the king. We see this in the response of King Toy, the king of Hamath, in chapter 8, verse 9 and 10, when he heard of David's great military victories, how he destroyed all his enemies and subdued them into servanthood, when he realized who David was, who he represented, King Toy sent a royal delegation headed by his own son to honor King David, to inquire after his, wealth, uh, his health, and then to bless him and to shower him with gifts of silver and gold. But then there's the opposite response. There's the foolish response, which is to scorn the king. Seen in the actions of King Hanun in chapter 10. He rejected David's offer of covenant faithfulness. He rejected David's offers of comfort and support. He threw it all back in David's face, treating him with scorn and disgrace. But if this story is really a story which points us to David's greatest son, to King Jesus, who will reign on David's throne forever, then the application of this story is really about how you and I will respond to Jesus. Providentially, we've just finished our series in Revelation. Hopefully the battle scenes from the end of Revelation as the lamb wages war against the dragon and his allies, they're still fresh in your mind. The day is coming when King David's greatest son will ride out in victory on a white horse and will destroy all his enemies forever. That day of the battle of Armageddon will make these battles in chapters 8 and 10 seem like child's play. And the outcome of that battle will be eternal. The question today for you and me is, what will our response be to King Jesus? Will it be the only sensible one, which is to fall on our faces before him, to honor him as king, to plead for his forgiveness, and to seek his favor? Or will it be the foolish response, to scorn the king, to mock and ridicule his offers of grace and forgiveness, 
to reject those whom he has sent into our lives, to tell us of his covenant kindness and his grace and to bring us comfort? Will we go and form all kinds of alliances with the, the world which belong to the dragon as we await the sealing of our final destruction in the fires of hell? I want to close today by by reading Psalm 2. Take two minutes of your coffee time. Psalm 2 is a psalm which not only summarizes these two chapters as we've considered them in history today, but a psalm which is messianic. Won't you turn to Psalm 2 and just read it with me and perhaps go and meditate on it in the course of this week. It's a psalm which connects the history of David with the fulfillment in Jesus. And it's a psalm which calls you and me to respond. Let's read Psalm 2 together. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So now, therefore, here's the response. O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Kiss the sun with a capital S. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Or may that last line be true for each and every one of us today. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again this morning for your word, uh, difficult portions of your word, and yet we are in them, we see in the unfolding plans and purposes your sovereign providence over all of history. We see you not just working out all things for the good of those who love you, but ultimately working out all of history to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we are so grateful that we live on this side of the cross, that we can look back and see all of your dealings with Israel finally finding their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But how much more guilty does that make us today if we scorn not just an earthly king that you have placed over us, but we scorn the very Son of the Most High God. So I pray that any here today, Lord, whose hearts are hard, who even right now are scorning you in their seat, scorning me as a messenger of yours as I bring your word today, may you bring them to that place like King Toy, where they recognize that unless they bow the knee and honor you and seek your favor, they too will be destroyed. Lord, won't you draw them to yourself, we pray. And for all of us who have run to you for refuge, may we find great delight in our King of kings and Lord of lords. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.